بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد I just want to uh, go back slightly since it's not a very long piece uh, and maybe we, we went quite quickly over some of the battles or the, I keep calling them battles, but they're not really battles, the, the invasions or the military activities that took place between the Battle of Badr and the Battle of Uhud. And the Nadim, the poet, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, mentions two. He mentions Ghatafan and he mentions Bani Sulaim. So I'll just read you very briefly from Ar-Rahiq Al-Makhtoum, the sealed nectar. What is said about each of those? Uh, the author, Rahimullah Ta'ala, he said, the Al-Qudr invasion. Remember that we said regarding Ghatafan that, that it's also uh, known as the Battle of Al-Qudr because that was the place where the invasion or the, 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 the uh, expedition, the military expedition took place. The author, he says, the scouting body of Medina reported that Banu, here it says Banu Salim, uh, of Ghatafan were engaged in mustering troops to invade the Muslims. The Prophet ﷺ took the initiative and mounted a surprise attack in their own homeland at a watering place called Al-Qudr. When they received the news, they fled before he arrived. He stayed there for three days, took their 500 camels as booty and distributed them to the fighters. After he had set aside the usual one-fifth, each fighter gained two camels. The author then goes on to talk about Banu uh, Qaynuqa' and we, talk, we spoke about Banu Qaynuqa' uh, prior to that and that they were expelled to a place in Syria. And then the author goes on to talk about As-Sawiq, the battle of As-Sawiq, or the invasion of As-Sawiq. He said, in the aftermath of Badr, Abu Sufyan was burning for revenge and took a solemn vow he would never bathe off impurity until he had avenged himself against Muhammad and his followers. He set out at the head of 200 men towards Medina but was not brave enough to attack it in broad daylight. Instead, he resorted to acts of piracy that were performed in the dark. He raided a suburb of Al-Medina. The men felled and burnt the palm trees and killed two Muslims and took swiftly to their heels. 
On hearing the news, the Prophet ﷺ gathered his men and set out at their heels but could not catch them. The Muslims brought back the provisions from which the polytheists had thrown aside in order to lighten their loads and hasten their escape. And what they, what they had thrown was a sawiq. And a sawiq, maybe you guys uh, are aware of it. It's kind of like a barley. It's kind of some, something made of barley like porridge. Um, and the campaign was then known as a sawiq. And then here, the author of Ar-Rahiq al-Maktoum mentions Dil Amr. But Dil Amr, in our explanation, we said, uh, as I think I mentioned to you uh, before that, that the battle of Ghatafan or the invasion of Ghatafan was also called the invasion of Dil Amr. Uh, the author of Ar-Rahiq al-Maktoum separates the two and has one Ghatafan and another one called Dhil Amr. This is something important generally because what you'll see is that actually all of these invasions and all of these things that happened are all interlinked. They're not separate, completely separate occurrences where they have a whole different people involved and you know, often it's the case that they happen very, very close together almost immediately after the Battle of Badr. Some of them, it's said that Ghatafan happened within something like uh, seven days of the Battle of Badr. So you have many things happening close together, which involve similar people and similar tribes in similar locations. And so some may separate them, some may put them together. Uh, what he says about Dil Amr is he makes, he makes a separate, uh, the author of Ar-Rahiq al-Maktoum, he said, the Prophet's intelligence personnel reported that Banu Tha'laba and Banu Maharib were mustering troops, troops with the aim of raiding the outskirts of Medina. The Prophet at the head of 450 horsemen and footmen set out to handle this situation. Uthman ibn Affan was asked to dispose of the affairs of the Muslims in Medina. And they encountered a watering place called Dhil Amr for the whole of Safar. And if you notice, the Sheikh Abdul Razak, when he explains it, he gives that same explanation for the battle of Ghatafan. And he puts them, the two of them together. Here the author separates them and says that Ghatafan is one thing and the battle of Dil Amr is another. We continue now. There were other events that happened, of course, and other invasions and, and other things. Uh, you can read about them in Ar-Rahiq al-Maktoum. And as I said, I think that what is probably essential for everyone who does this seerah course is for you to download or for you to buy a copy of the sealed nectar uh, and for you to actually go through these events in that book. And I actually find this to be a really useful way of studying the seerah because when I first read the sealed nectar, I found it actually quite difficult uh, to follow what was going on. But having studied the summary and then going to the sealed nectar, you find it really quite easy to follow and it becomes a lot clearer. So I would recommend, it doesn't have to be the sealed nectar. You could go through any reliable book of seerah because ultimately they all talk about the same thing. But the sealed nectar is a well-known one that is available easily in English and it's available online and so on. So it might be something useful for you to go through uh, I don't go into it a lot because we don't have very much time, but just sometimes, you know, it kind of clarifies 
particularly those events that are not well known. We all know about the Battle of Badr. We all know the Battle of Uhud, generally. We might not know all of the details, but we know the overall picture of the Battle of Badr and the Battle of Uhud. But maybe a lot of us, when it comes to things like the invasion of As-Sawiq, when it comes to things like Ghatafan and Dil Amr and these kind of, you know, sort of minor invasions and things, we may not be aware of the details of them or yani, the full details of them. So reading about them in a book that maybe goes into more detail, and the book is very, I mean, the book is very approachable. So the author, and, and in, terms of, uh, in terms of poetry, we're on to the 60th line in which the author says, وَزَيْنَبًا ثُمَّ غَزَى إِلَىٰ فِي شَهْرِ شَوَّالٍ وَحَمْرَاءِ الْأَسَدِ we said Wazainaban. Wazainaban we covered. Zainaban is the marriage of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to Zainab binti Khuzayma Al Hilaliya Radiallahu Anha, who is known as Ummul Masakin. And we're going to return to the story of Zainab in a moment after the battle of Uhud. Then the, then the poet, he talks about ثُمَّ غَزَى إِلَىٰ أُحُدْ فِي شَهْرِ شَوَّالِ Then in the month of Shawwal, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam fought the battle of Uhud. And the battle of Uhud is one of those huge events in the seerah that has an immense amount of time given to it. A significant number of ayat were revealed regarding it. And there are many, many lessons to take. I'll give you an overview of what happened in the battle. I'm not going to go into loads of detail about it. Actually, we had a suggestion from one of the students that we might perhaps make a Friday night reflections class just on maybe the battle of Badr and the battle of Uhud, for example, where we can go into some real details about what happened. But really what I want to do is make sure everyone knows what happened at Uhud and then make sure we understand the lessons or some of the key lessons that we should extract. Because seerah in general, and I've probably spoken about this, is one of those topics where it is, it's, an, it's an incredibly easy way to increase, not only increase your iman, but increase also your sabr and increase your, your generally your own kind of ability to uh, handle trials and tribulations and difficulties. And one of the ways you do that is by reading the seerah of the Prophet And it's one of the ways that you increase your iman and you, you feel an attachment to the Prophet and you increase in love of him and his companions. So seerah is a very practical topic. It's not something that we just, you know, sort of go through because it's a nice story and, you know, we can all remember what happened. It has very practical aspects to it. And there are a lot of lessons that can be taken out of each of these events. And it's enough as, of a lesson that the Qur'an was revealed or parts of the Qur'an, passages of the Qur'an were revealed about these events because of the lessons that they, con that they contain. So as for the battle of Uhud, we know that the Mushrikeen wanted revenge. We heard that Abu Sufyan had already tried to get some kind of revenge in the battle or the invasion of As-Sawiq. So he had already come to Medina and kind of 
you know, set fire to some trees and kind of cause some trouble and then run off. We know that the, the mushrikun, for them, Badr was a huge slap in the face. It was a huge disgrace to them that really this little band of kind of rebels who are just, you know, a tiny group of people and really don't have any, you know, before they were under the feet of Quraysh, many of them were enslaved by Quraysh. You know, you have this tiny band of what Quraysh must consider are just a, a small group of rebels who absolutely defeat Quraysh, you know, without any question in the Battle of Badr. And not only defeat them, but kill many of their nobles and their most, you know, eminent warriors are killed. So really it is, and, and you know, despite the fact that Quraysh were better armed and had far larger numbers than the Muslims. We said Quraysh was around about a thousand people even after they had two or three hundred of their army turned back. They still numbered around about a thousand people and the Muslims numbered at three hundred. The Battle of Badr was a huge sort of slap in the face to, to the Mushrikun of Quraysh. And so they wanted revenge. And where you see the Battle of Badr was, uh, it was something that was unplanned. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَلَوْ تَوَاعِدْتُمْ لَاخْتَلَفْتُمْ فِي الْمِيَعَادِ لَكِنْ لِيَقَضِيَ اللَّهُ أَمْرًا كَانَ مَفْعُولًا If you had made an agreement to both turn up on that day, you would have broken your agreement. Yani the battle of Badr was not an organized battle where the Muslims and the non-Muslims all, you know, like, let's meet and have a battle. Yani this was something that happened because of the Muslims raiding the caravans of Quraysh. And it was very much a surprise. Quraysh came out very quickly without preparation and without organization. They just came very, very quickly in order to, you know, primarily in order to save their, their money, to save their caravan. But it was the decree of Allah Azza wa Jal that the Battle of Badr should happen. Even when the Muslims went out for the Battle of Badr, they didn't go out for a decisive battle against Quraysh. They went out in order to get the caravan that was being led back from Syria. The Battle of Uhud is very different. Because in the Battle of Uhud, both sides know that this is a battle. It's not about stealing some money from a caravan. It's not about, you know, it's not about raiding it. It's not about them defending you know themselves, it's a battle that is deliberately intended by the mushrikeen of Quraysh that we're going to go to Medina and we're going to finish off these Muslims once and for all. And as you know, Medina is a city that is well protected in terms of, and we're going to come to this again and again when we talk about things like Al-Khandaq. The, the city of Medina is, is a well protected city. It's a city that is at least in terms of ancient battles, like maybe not in terms of, you know, what we talk about aeroplanes and whatever, but if we talk about sort of traditional battles and ancient battles, Medina is a very well, a very easy to defend, a city that is very easy to defend because it's surrounded on three sides. You have big mountains. You guys know the mountain of Uhud. You've been to Medina, most of you. You'll have seen that huge mountain that goes for... for for, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's around about 10 or over 10, maybe it's over 10 kilometers. It's a huge mountain that stretches out. Then on other sides of Medina, you have Al-Harrah. You have the, the volcanic rock, the hard volcanic rock, that basically the traditional armies, you know, sort of 
cavalry and infantry could not move over the Harra. You couldn't move an army over it. It's like jagged, very, very difficult to cross volcanic rock. You can't, get, you can't basically get over it with an army. You could probably get over it as an individual, but you couldn't take an army over it. So Medina is well defended. That would mean that there aren't that many places that an army can come into Medina, at least an army on foot. There are not that many places that an army on foot can enter into Medina. And this battle took place with the mountain of Uhud in the backdrop. So the mountain of Uhud, as you know, if you, uh, I don't know how well you guys know Medina, but if you are in the Masjid al-Nabawi and you're facing the Qibla, so you're in the Masjid al-Nabawi, you're facing the direction of the prayer. And you turn around so your back faces the Qibla. And you walk out of the door right in the middle of the masjid. The door that's dead in the center of the masjid, the King Fahad Gate. And you go straight. And you just keep walking and walking and walking. I don't know, about a few kilometers, five kilometers, whatever. You reach the mountain of Uhud. So that would have been the directions the, Muslim would have ta- the Muslims would have taken. They were coming from Medina, from the Masjid al-Nabawi. Medina was very small at that time. They would have traveled in the opposite direction of the Qibla, straight outwards, like literally sort of towards where the middle of the masjid is, all the way straight until they reach the mountain of Uhud. And around the mountain of Uhud, if you kind of like it, on the side that is nearest to the masjid, there is a wadi, there is a valley. And you can still see this valley today because if you go to Shuhuda Uhud, you'll see that there is a, um, there are like road bridges that kind of cross into this. It almost looks like a moat. It looks like, it almost looks, the valley almost looks like a moat that surrounds that area where Shuhuda Uhud is. So there's like a little valley. Uh, and that valley, you have to remember that especially when the rain would fall, those valleys would become pretty thick with vegetation and, you know, things that would be carried by the water and, you know, so there would be some cover in the valley. The area where the Shuh- where Shuhuda Uhud is now, you have that, you can see you have that small mountain, that small hill that usually you see people standing on top of. This is known as the Archer's Mountain, Jebel al Rumah. So when the Prophet ﷺ came to Uhud, he set up his army as such that he had archers on top of that small hill, that hill that is kind of, it's climbable, you know, you see people on top of it. Uh, And that hill is separate from the mountain of Uhud. It's not a part of the mountain of Uhud. It's a separate kind of hill which faces the mountain of Uhud. And those archers were to provide cover against the forces of Quraysh which came. And the forces of Quraysh which came were quite significant. Uh, They were led by... Uh, by Abu Sufyan and by Khalid ibn al-Walid and by Ikrimah ibn Abi Jahl. And the most interesting thing about that is what happened to those three people. All three of them became Muslim. And that's one of the lessons from this battle. That subhanAllah, you see this in the seerah. You see people who went to, their story is mentioned about the assassination of the Prophet and they went with a poisoned sword and you know, they, they, they're cons- like one of these big enemies of Islam. And then you see them within a short time, they become Muslim and the whole situation, the whole dynamic changes. So you had the armies and if I'm not mistaken, 
I don't, I'm trying to recall if Khalid ibn Walid was on the left or the right, but in any case, he was on one of the sides. And the battle ensued. And when the battle begun, because of the cover of the archers from that hill, the Muslims were, were easily able to overcome their enemy. And the Muslims basically routed the enemy. There was no chance for them. The enemy uh, were, were being, you know, sort of uh, killed on the battlefield. And it got to the point where the, the army started to, to turn and, and basically break up. And again, you know, it's difficult to it, but if you kind of think about how these old battles used to happen, that the armies were very rigid and very kind of, you know, they came together in a big block. But once some of the, once, you know, the battle progresses, basically when one of the armies breaks up, it, it, you know, they just start to break up and move away because the, 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 uh, they've been attacked so badly that they lose their formation, they lose their discipline, and everyone just starts to, to move away. At this point, Khalid ibn al-Walid hadn't taken any, any action. He was observing the battle from one of the flanks. And he was aware that the problem or the reason that the Muslims were having such control over the battle was because the Prophet ﷺ had put these archers on top of the mountain. And the Prophet ﷺ had said to them, do not descend the mountain. Whatever you do, don't come down. For any reason, don't come down. Even if you see us, in some of the narrations mentioned, even if you see us sharing the war booty, don't come down. Nobody expected that the battle would go so well for the Muslims. It was, you know, in a, in a fairly short period of time, they were overcoming their enemy, the enemy started to break up and move away, but still you have people camped at the back. You have these, these commanders of Quraysh, people like Khalid ibn al-Walid, who haven't yet... You know, they haven't yet jumped into the fighting. They're waiting and they're watching what is happening with the, you know, the infantry battle that is happening on the plain of Uhud, on this plain beside the mountain of Uhud. At this point, the archers, seeing that the Muslims have won the battle, that the people are taking war booty, you know, people are sharing out all of the, the weaponry and the armor and all of those things that they've seized, they see that the battle is basically over. There's nothing left to do. And, you know, the way these battles go, like we said, you know, once the formation breaks up and the people started to sort of, run, they lose all their discipline and they all disappear, and the battle's over. So they came down from the mountain, despite the fact the Prophet ﷺ had told them not to. Now, of course, not all of them went down. There was a small number of them who remained on top of the mountain. But what happened was that Khalid ibn al-Walid was able to use the cover of that valley, that area that looks like a moat. He was able to use that to come around the flank of the Muslims and to come up the archers' mountain because there was no longer enough archers to provide cover against that from happening. And so he, when he was able to do that, he was able to flank the Muslims and come. And of course, you know, in these ancient battles, once you get around one of the armies, then there's a big problem. And once one of the armies gets around the other, there's a big, big problem. And so effectively, why the Prophet ﷺ had put those archers on that mountain is to stop the possibility of Quraysh getting around the Muslims from the side. And as soon as those archers went down, there was an opportunity for people who had not taken part in that skirmish with the infantry in the middle. Like Khalid ibn al-Walid, there was an opportunity for them to 
come around and to flank the Muslims. And that was, of course, uh, something that caused a huge amount of disarray, especially because the Muslims themselves have kind of somewhat lost their discipline. You know, they've kind of started sharing out war booty and the battle is over and, you know, everyone is, you know, kind of relieved and everyone is thinking about, Alhamdulillah, we got another victory. And suddenly you have this flanking movement from Khalid ibn al-Walid that throws the whole battle into disarray. And all of the Muslims scatter. And the battle then moves over to the mountain of Uhud itself. And the Prophet wasallam, the fighting became so close that there were only a handful of people around the Prophet wasallam, and the swords of Quraysh were, were flying, you know, left, right and center to the point that the Prophet's face was, was wounded and his tooth was broken. And then the Muslims rallied around when they saw what had happened and they kind of took stock of what happened. They came back and they brought their discipline back again, which is very rare. This is almost unheard of in a, you know, except for the blessing of Allah in, in ancient battles, it's almost unheard that when one army then, you know, breaks up, that they bring their discipline back again, they form back again. But they form back again and they manage to fight off the fighters from Quraysh so that the people of, you know, the Quraysh they turned and they left. But what you have here is you have a battle that is basically, it's a big loss to the Muslims, even though the reality of the battle, probably the outcome of the battle, is that it's probably even, in the sense that the Muslims had killed a great number of them and had, you know, had won the battle initially, and then Quraysh were able to overcome them, and then again the Muslims were able to drive them off. It's not a decisive victory for Quraysh by any means. But it's a big shock to the Muslims. It's a big shock. Especially after Badr and especially seeing how close the Prophet ﷺ came to being killed. To the point that even among Quraysh there were rumors that the Prophet ﷺ had been killed. And he had certainly been, they knew he had been wounded, and there were, you know, there were rumors going around that he had been that he had been killed. These rumors even spread to the Muslims to the point that many Muslims during the battle heard the rumor that the Prophet ﷺ had been killed. And that of course would have led to even greater uh, sort of uh, fear and even greater disarray when you lose your, you know, you don't just lose your commanding officer, you lose the Prophet ﷺ. And you're thinking about what about Islam and what about the revelation and all of those things that would have even you know, made the disarray even worse in the battle of Uhud. But ultimately, it ended in you know, somewhat of a stalemate in the sense that Quraysh were not able to get a decisive victory, but they were able to get a, a degree of revenge and a degree of payback for some of the things that happened in the battle uh, of Badr. There are many, many lessons that we can take from the Battle of Uhud. Probably the greatest of all of them is the lesson of the importance of obeying the Prophet and what happens when you disobey the Prophet And you have to remember that it wasn't a malicious act of disobedience from those archers. It wasn't malicious. It wasn't like that they intended to do something really 
bad and they, you know, just coveted the wealth that was at the bottom of the mountain and they just, you know, they just kind of went to get it. It wasn't like that at all. It was, it was a very innocent act. It was something that they thought, okay, we were told to stay here and now the battle is over. So now we should go down and, you know, get our share. But the ultimate sort of, or the summary of what happened was that they disobeyed the command of the Prophet The command of the Prophet was not to come down under any circumstances, even under the circumstance of victory. But they did come down. And they, when they did that, it caused this huge reversal in the battle. And so this is something that we all have to understand. Whenever we disobey the Prophet ﷺ, bad things will happen. And the situation the Muslims are in, whenever the Muslims lose a battle, or whenever the Muslims are under the control of their enemy, we see it in this day and age, in so many Muslim uh, countries, that Muslims are sort of underneath their enemies and under threat from their enemies. The reason for this is disobedience to Allah and His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And that's why the solution to these issues that we are facing today, when we see that the enemies of Islam have a control over the Muslims and they have a degree of, you know, sort of superiority and a degree of military strength that the Muslims don't have, the reason for that is disobedience to Allah and His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And that when we correct those acts of disobedience, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give strength back again. And that's the second lesson that we can take from the battle of Uhud. That this is not irreversible. The Muslims suffered a loss, a huge loss. When they disobeyed the Prophet And then when he called them back, the messenger is calling you to the hereafter. They came back again and they formed around the Prophet again and they fought against the mushrikeen of Quraysh and drove them off. And that shows you that even when the Muslims are being overcome by their enemy, if they return to obedience and come back to the sunnah of the Prophet then Allah Azza wa Jal will give them victory even in the jaws of defeat. And even when they are at the stage where they are about to be defeated, if they return back, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give them, will give them victory. From the lessons that we learn from the battle of Uhud is that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam did not know the ghaib. And we keep emphasizing this, but the whole of the seerah is, a, is an evidence for this. And that guidance is not in the hands of the Prophet ﷺ. Look at the people who were fighting on behalf of Quraysh and look at how many of those people, the people who cut the cheek of their Prophet, who smashed the tooth of their Prophet, who later became among the Muslims that everyone is proud to count among the Muslims. People like Khalid ibn al-Walid. Now everyone is proud of Khalid ibn al-Walid radiallahu ta'ala anhu arda. And we mention his battles and how, you know, that he never lost a battle as a Muslim or even as a non-Muslim. And all of the things that he did. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, when he was wounded, he said, how will a people be successful who wound their Prophet? 
How can it be that a people will wound their Prophet and then Allah will guide them? Meaning that it's not, you know, this is not expected to happen. And yet Allah Azza wa Jal guided many of those people. And some of the scholars mention this in relation to the ayah, لَيْسَ لَكَ مِنَ الْأَمْرِ شَيْءٍ You don't have any control over this, O Muhammad. This is not your, this is not your affair. You don't decide who gets guided and who doesn't get guided. And this is a big lesson that we learn from the seerah. That our Messenger وسلم, he didn't have guidance and misguidance in his hands. Allah Azza wa Jal is the one who guides and misguides alone. Alone and with no partner. So the Prophet وسلم, if you look, he strived his every bit of energy that he had to guide his uncle Abu Talib. And his uncle Abu Talib died as a non-Muslim. And the people who broke his tooth and cut his face, those people, many of them became Muslim. The three major generals that fought for Quraysh in that battle, all of them became Muslim. So that is a big lesson for us in terms of guidance and misguidance. And in terms of what the Prophet ﷺ said, do not exaggerate with regard to me like the Christians exaggerated with regard to Isa ibn Maryam. Don't put me above like the Christians put Isa ibn Maryam above. Any the Christians made Isa a god besides Allah. Guidance and misguidance are in the hands of Allah Azza wa Jal alone. We also learn from the battle of Uhud. Uh, or the, I mean, there are so many things we can pick, but one of the lessons that the Quran or that is emphasized in the Quran is the effect of your sins in general. Not just, we talked about disobedience of the Prophet but the effect of your sins and the fact that whatever musibah afflicts you, whatever calamity befalls you, that calamity happened because of you and the sins that you did. And by turning to Allah you can remove that uh, calamity. In terms of the people who died in the battle of Uhud, there are too many to mention, but perhaps you know, some of the most, or, some, or perhaps two of the most famous of the people who died from the Muslims, there were 70, just a little over 70, around 70 of, the, of the, uh, the Muslims who died in the battle of Uhud, the shuhada, the martyrs of Uhud. And among them was Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib. And Hamza, Hamza was not killed in the battle itself as, as in terms of by the opposing army. But Quraysh had brought along uh, an Abyssinian uh, spear thrower with the specific instruction of killing Hamza whose name I think was Wahshi and they gave the very specific instruction stay in the tent and don't participate in the battle but when you see the chance to kill Hamza kill Hamza and he was promised for this he was promised uh, the wife, you remember those three that took part in the, in the wrestling in the beginning of the Battle of Badr we talked about. Uh, and uh, we said that there was a father and a brother and a son. If I'm not mistaken, it was the wife of that father who said that if you, to, to, to this uh, spear thrower, if you kill Hamza, 
I will give you all the gold that I own. And another man came and said, if you kill Hamza, I will set you free. He was the owner of that slave who threw the spear. He said, if you kill Hamza, I will set you free. So this, you know, slave who has the spear, and it's said that he would never miss. And he was a person that when he threw a spear, he would not miss. He was promised two things. He was promised his freedom and he was promised all of the gold that this woman owned in order to get revenge against Hamza for uh, for killing uh, who he killed in the battle of Badr. He did the, exactly what he was instructed. He waited in the tent. He did not take part in the battle in any way. And he simply, you know, snuck around waiting and waiting and he hid behind a tree. It's mentioned that he hid behind a shrub or behind a tree until he saw a chance and he was able to, uh, to throw his spear and it pierced uh, Hamza radiallahu anhu wa arda Hamza was he lived for a short time after that but ultimately on the battlefield itself and he, after I don't know a few minutes or however long it was he passed away radiallahu uh, anhu and the other person that is often mentioned in the battle of uh, of Uhud even though there are many is Mus'ab ibn Umair who was obviously and he, he was one of the, the rich, spoilt kind of children of Quraysh. And when he became Muslim, he became so poor that when they buried him on the day of Uhud, they couldn't find a piece of clothing that would cover him from the top of his head to his feet. And so they had to cover his head with the clothing that he had, and his feet they had to cover with grass. Because he didn't, you know, he, that's the extent to which he went. And of course, the loss of people was a huge, uh, was a huge blow to uh, the Muslims and a huge loss for the Muslims, especially people like Hamza radiallahu an, who had been such a, 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 for, a sort of a source of strength for the Muslims during, the, especially during the, 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 the later years in Makkah and then during the, uh, the time in Medina and in the battles, the Battle of Badr and, and the other battles. Immediately after Uhud, Allah Azza wa Jal tested the Muslims with a, a, another test. And it's even, it's, it's even made quite clear that this is a, a deliberate, yani this is a deliberate test. And it's called Hamra al-Asad. The battle or the invasion of Hamra al-Asad. And the test is that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa wanted to chase the enemy from Uhud and to strike fear into them. But instead of allowing anyone to take part, he only allowed those people that had been a part of Uhud and okay, with the exception of Jabir ibn Abdullah, I think, radiallahu But what's interesting here is that these people are still wounded from the battle of Uhud. They're wounded and they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're exhausted and they've, you know, they've just been through this big battle and they've suffered a loss. And the Prophet immediately follows that up with another expedition. And in this he clearly refuses permission for the people who did not take part in Uhud. He doesn't say, bring me the people who are fresh, you know, the people who are in Medina who are, you know, they're, they're, they're fresh and ready to fight. 
bring me the wounded from Uhud. And it's almost like this is a lesson to the Muslims that now you have to make right. You know, you've, you, you had this loss and there's two, two real reasons for this. Number one, it's like a test. Look, you've had this loss by disobeying the Prophet Now the Prophet despite the fact that you are wounded, he's calling you to take part in this battle. Are you going to obey or are you going to make the same mistake again? And the second thing is psychologically, what did that do for the Muslims? It's like, it gives them the upper hand. It's like, yes, you suffered a loss of people in Uhud. You lost some people who were dear to you and beloved to you. But now you're going to go out and you're going to chase that same enemy down. So it gives them that, it puts the confidence back into them again. And that, those are perhaps two of the reasons why the Prophet ﷺ in this expedition, the expedition of Hamra al-Asad, the Prophet ﷺ uh, kind of required that the people who take part were the same wounded people from the battle of the same people from Uhud who were some of them were wounded and some of them were you know were, were exhausted and so on and they reached uh, a place called Hamra al-Asad which is about 20 kilometers away from Medina and Allah Azza wa Jal revealed the ayah in Surah Ali Imran, those who answered the call of the messenger after having been afflicted by wounds, after having been wounded, they still answered the call of the Prophet For those who do good among them and those who protect themselves from the punishment of Allah, there is a great reward. So it's, it's almost like a redemption for the mistakes that were made in the battle of Uhud. The poet then goes on to say, وَالْخَمْرُ حُرِّمَتْ يَقِينًا فَاسْمَعًا هَذَا وَفِيهَا وُلِدَ السِّبْطُ الْحَسَنِ The poet goes on to talk about the alcohol, which after the battle of Uhud now, in, in order now, you have alcohol being prohibited. And this was in the third year after the Hijrah. And it said the fourth year after the battle of Bani al-Nadir. Some of the scholars said it was in the fourth year after Banu Nadir. But the well-known opinion is that it was in the third year after the battle of Uhud. Yaqeena, meaning that it was made haram absolutely. Because as we know, alcohol was forbidden in stages. In the beginning, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forbade the Muslims from coming to the prayer while drunk. Don't come towards the prayer when you are in a state of intoxication until you know what you're saying. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِنَّمَا الْخَمْرُ وَالْمَيْسِرُ وَالْأَنصَابُ وَالْأَزْلَامُ رِجِسٌ مِّنْ عَمَلِ الشَّيْطَانِ فَاجْتَنِبُوهُ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُفْرِحُونَ O you who believe indeed alcohol and gambling and the stone altars and, uh, and these practices of the shirk that the mushrikeen had they are filth from the action of the shaytan or from the works of the shaytan so keep away from, the, from them so that you may be successful. 
And then also in the third year was the birth of Al-Hasan ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib radiyallahu anhumah. As for Al-Hasan radiyallahu an, it's worth noting that there's something, something unique about Al-Hasan. Well, there, there are so many unique things about Al-Hasan. It's something and maybe that not many people are, are aware of. The custom of the Arabs was to name their boys with names that would strike fear into the hearts of the enemy. So they would name them things like Al-As and, you know, like the, the, you know, the things like, you know, really, really, um, you know, scary and really quite like bitter names. You know, they would name them things like Muqatil, killer and slaughterer and, you know, poison and things that would make, you know, that would, that would strike fear into the hearts of their, of their enemies. The Prophet ﷺ changed this when he named Al-Hasan. He changed this tradition. And it's one of the first people, can't maybe say the first, but among the first people to be given, for a boy to be given a name that was soft and, you know, and beautiful. Al-Hasan, any beauty, handsomeness. You know, something soft and gentle. Because the tradition of the Arabs is that they would give their girls soft and beautiful names. And they would give their boys names that when you heard this guy's coming on the battlefield, you ran away before you even came. Yeah. And that's why if you go through the names of the Arabs in Jahiliya, a lot of them have, you know, they call things like harb, you know, war, and, you know, fighter and slaughterer and, you know, things like that. So that when these names would be heard on the battlefield, or at least names of pride and names of, you know, names of sort of that, that, uh, that would benefit them in war. And among the first, I'm not sure if it's the first, but some of the scholars mention among the first of the people for this tradition to be changed was Al-Hasan ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu an. And of course Al-Hasan is the one about whom the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Inna ibn hadha sayyid, indeed this grandson of mine is a leader. He will, correct, he will bring peace between two warring groups of the believers. And this also tells us that the, the, the fight or the disagreement that happened between Ali ibn Abi Talib and between Muawiyah radiallahu anhum ajma'in was, did not take away from the fact that both of those groups and all of the people who were with them were Believers, because the Prophet ﷺ said that they, he will make peace between two great groups of the believers, and of course, he was the one who made peace between the group that had fought with his father Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu an, and the group that had fought with Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan radiallahu anhum. When he obviously gave up the the khilafa uh, and gave it to Muawiyah radiallahu an. وكان في الرابعة الغزو إلى بني النضير في في ربيع أولا في ربيع أولا So now the poet goes on to talk about بني النضير 
Banu Nadir are the second group of the Jews that were around the area or living within the area of Medina. The first one that we had was Banu Qaynuqa' and we said that they were expelled to Syria uh, by the Prophet وسلم, when they betrayed the promise or they betrayed the, uh, the treaty that they had entered into the Prophet وسلم, with. In the fourth year after the Hijrah was the battle or the invasion of Banu Nadir and the reason for this is that a man from among the companions had killed two men that were under the treaty of the Prophet ﷺ without realizing. So the Prophet ﷺ went out to Bani Nadir in order to pay the blood money, in order to pay the blood money, in order to pay back for the fact that that person was killed who should not have been, who should not have been killed. However, they betrayed the Prophet ﷺ and made an attempt to kill him. Uh, they sent uh, a, any one of their, you know, one of their wretched individuals to kill the Prophet ﷺ. And, and uh, Jibril descended with wahi to inform the Prophet ﷺ of the intention. And so the Prophet ﷺ, upon his return to Medina, became aware of this plot to assassinate him. And the Prophet ﷺ prepared to go out and to fight them because these are a people who have now broken their treaty. They've broken their treaty with the Muslims. And while they had kept that treaty, as Allah ﷺ said in Surah At-Tawbah, فَمَسْتَقَامُوا لَكُمْ فَاسْتَقِيمُوا لَهُمْ as long as they keep their word, you keep your word. But when they broke their word and they intended to kill the Prophet wasallam and to assassinate him and they sent out a man with that particular task, then the Prophet wasallam decided to fight against them because they had broken their, they had broken their treaty. And when the Muslims went to their, the place where they were, they surrounded them and they laid siege to their homes for six nights and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put fear in the hearts or struck fear into their hearts and the Prophet sallallahu wasallam finally made an agreement that they could that they would be allowed to leave with whatever their camel their camels could carry any one person, he takes a camel, he can put a few possessions on it, but he's not allowed to take any weaponry. And they were expelled, and Allah revealed about it, Surat Al-Hashar.
Then the poet continues and he says, وَبَعْدُ مَوْتُ زَيْنَبَ الْمُقَدَّمَةِ وَبَعْدَهُ نِكَاحُ أُمِّ سَلَمَةِ After that, and we're in the fourth year, after the Hijrah right now, was the death of Zainab, binti Khuzayma al-Hilaliya, Ummul Masakin, radiallahu anha. She was the first of the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam to die, obviously after uh, Khadija, radiallahu anha. And it's said that she stayed with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam either two months or three months. So it's a very, very short time uh, between the time that she uh, married the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and then she passed away, Radiallahu Anha. And it's said it was longer than that. Uh, it's narrated that the Prophet Sallallahu married her in Ramadan in the third year and that she spent eight months with him and died in Rabi al-Akhir in the fourth year. So we, the, the smallest uh, opinion is that she stayed two or three months, and the longest one is that she stayed with him eight months. But it was a very, very short time between the time that she married the Prophet wasallam, and then she passed away. And after that, the Prophet wasallam married Umm Salama. And of course, in that, it is worth mentioning the... Uh, the famous uh, hadith in that regard ma min muslimin tusibuhu musibatun fayaqul ma amarahu allah inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un allahumma ajurni fi musibati wa akhruf li khayran minha illa akhlafahu allah khayran minha the prophet sallallahu said there is no muslim who is afflicted by a calamity then he says what Allah has commanded him to say, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. Indeed, we are for Allah and to Allah we will return. O oh Allah, give me reward in this calamity of mine and replace it with something better, except that Allah will replace it with something better. And when Abu Salama died, Umm Salama radiallahu anha said, Who could be better than Abu Salama? Who could be better than Abu Salama? And then she married the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when she made this dua. Well, this is a very important lesson. Uh, this lesson uh, of having that trust that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, even in the greatest calamity that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala has a wisdom in what he decrees and having that trust that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring you something better. So this is a dua that everyone, everyone should learn. And this marriage was after yani, the death of Zainab radiallahu anha. Then the poet, he said, وَبِنْتُ جَحْشٍ ثُمَّ بَدْرٍ مَوْعِدِي وَبَعْدَهَا الْأَحْزَابُ فَاسْمَعْ وَعْدُدِي The poet then says that the Prophet ﷺ married Zainab bint Jahsh al-Asadiyya radiallahu anha in the fourth year after the Hijrah and it's said the third year and it's also said the fifth year. And 
Zainab bint Jahsh radiallahu anha, it said that she was the one that the ayat of the, or the ayah of the hijab were, was uh, revealed uh, regarding. And of course, the uh, with uh, the the issue of uh, of Zainab or the marriage of Zainab, the most or one of the most important things is this: uh, the 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 fact that she was previously married to Zayd bin Haritha. Zayd bin Haritha, radiallahu an, was the adopted son of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and the Arabs had a tradition that or a culture that it is not allowed for a man to marry the divorced wife of uh, yani his adopted son. Whereas Islam said there is, no, there is no blood ties between them. The fact that the Prophet ﷺ treat Zayd like that did not stop uh, or does not stop him marrying Zainab when Zayd had, uh, yani when the marriage with Zayd had been cancelled. So Allah Azza wa Jal revealed the ayat in Surah Al-Ahzab فَلَمَّا قَضَى زَيْدٌ مِّنْهَا وَطَرًا زَوَّجْنَا فَلَمَّا قَضَى زَيْدٌ مِّنْهَا وَطَرًا زَوَّجْنَاكَهَا When Zayd had يعني, fulfilled his need or had fulfilled his contract with her we married you to her and it's mentioned that Zaynab radiallahu anha used to uh, she used to take pride in this and she used to say to the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam your families got you married to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala married me to him from above the seven heavens The next thing that the poet mentions is the battle or the invasion of Badr al-Maw'id. And it's also known as Badr al-Akhirah. Because there were three battles that relate to the battle of Badr. There, were three ba there was the first battle of Badr and the great battle of Badr and the last battle of Badr. There was the first battle of Badr. If you remember, it was an invasion. It was an invasion that took place uh, before the well-known battle of Badr. And the Prophet ﷺ again had set out to catch one of the uh, caravans of Quraysh. Then you have the great battle of Badr, Ghazwat Badr al-Kubara, the main battle of Badr. And then finally you have this third battle of Badr, which is known as Badr al-Maw'id, or Badr al-Akhirah, the last battle of Badr. Uh, because it came after the battle of Uhud. And it's called Badr al-Maw'id 
the better of يعني, the appointed time or something like that. I don't know if that's a good translation, but a mawid is obviously like an appointment or a fixed time that's agreed upon. And it's said that they had agreed after Uhud that at a particular time, we're going to come back again and fight one more time. Yani there was kind of a pre-arrangement that we're going to come back on this day at this time and we're going to fight. And the Prophet ﷺ went on the appointed time because he didn't used to break his promises and his, any, the, the appointments that were made. So he went out with his army at the appointed time and he stayed for eight nights and the kuffar of Quraysh went out from Makkah under the leadership of Abu Sufyan. However, they then decided to turn back. Or Abu Sufyan uh, decided to turn back. And so when they had gone out to meet yani the Muslims, the Muslims were there, they were waiting at their encampment for the battle. Quraysh set out under Abu Sufyan, but then they decided that they, for some reason they decided that they were, uh, that they were going to turn back. And there's a, yani there's a, there's a discussion about that that you can read a bit more about because we're kind of uh, pushed for time. Or perhaps I will read it for you next lesson. وَبَعْدَهَا الْأَحْزَابِ and after it was Al-Ahzab, after Badr al-Maw'id, which didn't result in any fighting, was the battle of Al-Khandaq, or the battle of Al-Ahzab. And inshallah ta'ala, I think we'll finish with the battle of Ahzab, we'll cover it now inshallah. We'll finish with it, uh, because we've been asked inshallah ta'ala today, because of the class that is happening, the seminar that is happening today at 9 o'clock, that we should finish inshallah ta'ala a little bit uh, early. So we'll just finish the battle of Al-Ahzab bi-idhnillahi ta'ala. The battle of Al-Ahzab or the battle of Al-Khandaq, the battle of the trench, was another huge test for the Muslims. And it was a one in which all of the tribes, the major tribes of the Arabian Peninsula, set out to destroy the Muslims once and for all. And when they set out, they obviously set out with a, a, a huge army. And the, the two features of the army, not only was it huge and was it really well, uh, well armed, but also it comprised of all of these tribes. It's like the whole of the Arabian Peninsula came together with the aim of once and for all dealing with the Muslims. And again, we come back to the fact that Medina is a very defensible city. And when they saw the huge numbers, or they heard of the huge numbers that were Uh, that were coming they needed a strategy that would be different from the strategies that they had used before 
And from this is the lesson of Al-Akhd bil-Asbab Any doing what you need to do in order to achieve something The Prophet ﷺ didn't say I'm going to make dua I'm going to stand, I'm just going to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala He took precautions He took physical precautions And he took the means by which he could gain victory And famously, of course, we know that uh, it was Salman al-Farisi radiallahu ta'ala anhu ardah who recommended to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that they dig a trench and this was from the ways of the Persians this was something that was known among the Persians when that they would fight when they were facing a superior force in numbers they would dig a trench in order to make it difficult for those huge numbers to be able to gain an advantage. So when he suggested this to the Prophet ﷺ, and bearing in mind that a trench suits Medina because it's covered from three sides. So if you take the fourth side and dig a trench, it effectively blocks Medina from the oncoming army. And it's really a huge, I mean, when you see the length of the Khandaq, it's absolutely huge considering that it's done by, by hand. You know, considering... I mean, probably if you looked at the way the old Persians would have done it, you would have presumed they would have had their slaves dig it out and they would have, you know, they would have had like maybe, you know, 10,000 slaves dig a trench or something. The Muslims are doing this. Not only are they doing this by themselves, but they're doing it in a state of extreme hunger. And this was a time when the Muslims were in, uh, you know, suffering from a famine. So they have this famine and this extreme hunger the fact that there isn't enough food to go around and then the people themselves with their own hands are digging this huge immensely huge trench which uh, you know in in the face of this oncoming in the face of this oncoming enemy and there were a number of miracles that happened uh, in that time from that was that the prophet sallallahu uh, that when he one of the companions offered to slaughter a small goat that he had and the Prophet ﷺ said that to keep the lid on the, the, the pot until I come. And then all of the people of the Khandaq ate from it. And they said when we looked in the pot, we didn't know whether there was more left in the pot before or after. And many miracles, the miracle of the huge stone that the people could not lift. And the Prophet ﷺ was able to, to lift and break. But it's also important to note the reason... Or one of the reasons behind the battle of the Khandaq. Which is that Banu Nadir themselves, who had been banished to Khaybar, Banu Nadir themselves, a group of them set out to Quraysh in Mecca and they encouraged them to fight against the Prophet and they promised them that they would support them. Then they went out to Ghatafan, any one of these huge tribes. And again, so you have this, this group from Banu Nadir who have just been banished to Khaybar. And they literally went out and organized the battle of the Khandaq. They organized all of these tribes to come out and they said, don't worry, if you bring your army, we're gonna, there's going to be other armies. And then they went out to this other tribe and said, if you come out and bring your army, there will be other armies. And they brought all of these armies out uh, together.
And it's also to, in, very important to note the third tribe of the Jews, which is Banu Quraidah. This is where they betray their agreement. So there were three groups of the Jews in Medina. We had Banu Qaynuqar and Banu Nadir, and finally Banu Quraidah. And this is the point where Banu Quraidah broke their uh, agreement among or broke their treaty. And this, to be honest, was one of, the one of the greatest tests of the Battle of the Khandaq. If it was just the oncoming armies, that in itself would have been a huge trial. But then to imagine that you also have the problem of your own people within your own city, within your own area, who betray you and turn against you from Banu Quraidah. And that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said regarding Al-Ahzab, Hunalika, it was here that the believers were tried and were shaken with a great shaking. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed that the Muslims would be victorious in the battle of the Khandaq and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent against the oncoming enemies this uh, Yani sandstorm or dust storm that caused them to turn back and that they were not able to fight and they were not able to, yani to, uh, to overcome or to defeat the Muslims. Uh, and that was, of course, a huge test for the Muslims. Uh, and a time when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the Iman of the Sahaba, when they saw all of these confederate armies come against them. And I mean, if you imagine what it would have been like to be in a small city and you know you're in a very small place you still have around about 3,000 people were fighting with the Prophet ﷺ, which is very very small in terms of the numbers that were against them and then you imagine that all of these armies came and when they saw all of these armies and they saw all of these these soldiers lining up against them the, the companions said this is what Allah and his messenger promised us and so it increased them in Iman it didn't make them fear, it didn't make them run away, it made them increase in Iman because of what they saw. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, after testing them with that huge test in terms of the hunger and the trials, the building of the trench, and then the battle itself, where the Muslims were able to return victorious with minimal, uh, yani with, uh, uh, yani minimal uh, suffering. I think we have to stop there, inshaAllah ta'ala because of the, uh, the event that we have today, and I know quite a few of you have to go home and pick up family and stuff before you go to the, uh, the seminar today, inshallah ta'ala. There won't be a Friday night class. Um, there won't be a Friday night class uh, tonight because it's too much for you to come from Fajr all the way until Isha, one after the other. So I'm not gonna be around for any questions also because I also have to go to the, uh, to the seminar, inshallah. So inshallah ta'ala, if you can just kind of make a note of your questions or make a thought of your questions, inshallah ta'ala, and we can try to answer them next time. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Salatu salamu ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.